All right. So last week, Eric's session uh, considered about 150 years from around A.D. 300 to around A.D. 450. Today, we're going to move beyond the four councils, the last of which was in A.D. 451, and we're going to cover all the way to the year A.D. 1054. And my wife often uh, berates me that my math is a little weak, but uh, quick estimation shows we're covering about 600 years this morning, which is a huge chunk of time. So in order to cover such an expansive period of time, we're just going to kind of move speedily across these 600 years, and we're going to pop into and out of occasional points in time just to kind of get a sense of how things are going within the early church and how things have changed over that period. So the title of this week's session is The Church at War. And I'm sure that as you read that, and as I read that as I was preparing for this, my initial assumption was that we would actually be talking about the Crusades in this session. Interestingly enough, we will be certainly discussing the church in the center of a war, but much more akin to a civil war than likely the expeditionary wars of the Crusades that you might think of. I will say if the Crusades interest you, uh, this will be a shameless plug for the core seminar session next week while Eric will be teaching on the High Middle Ages, and you can get your fill of that really interesting, rich part of uh, church history. So this morning, the church at war will be looking at this through three main themes. First, we'll we'll continue to see the degrading relationship between the church in the East and the church in the West. If you'll remember in Chalcedon in AD 451, we really saw by and large kind of a unified Christian church. That was the result of all the councils. Unfortunately, within about this period of 600 years, we're going to see that the church is actually split again, uh, and maybe definitively in a certain context. This is much more uh, about uh, a decoupling of the East and the West than it is about a specific point in time, uh, but we'll try and illustrate that as we work through. Secondly, we're going to study how this period is marked by the integration of church and state. So you'll recall Eric talking about Constantine and the concept of legalization of Christianity within the Roman Empire in and around 312, and this happened by virtue of the Edict of Milan. Following this normalization and general acceptance of Christianity, there there really developed a tight interweave uh, relationship between the church and the state, and we're going to explain how that kind of worked. And then lastly, we'll look at this time period through the lens of the church and how it interacted with the greater world. And we'll see kind of somewhat simultaneously some expeditionary missions work of the early church really contrasted with the somewhat isolating monastic movement. That's kind of an interesting uh, juxtaposition there. So next slide, please. We're going to start kind of in the fourth, uh, late 4th, early 5th century and you may ask, what's going around, what's happening in the church and Christianity around this time? Well, we talked about last week in around 451, the, that uh, meeting in Chalcedon, where the big theological debate is occurring on how the humanity and divinity of Jesus work together. What does that look like as it plays out in the church? Well, remember, this huge debate between Antioch and Alexandra, uh, it, it enraged. So everyone was trying to figure out what, you know, the Christology, you know, what was Christ? How did he, how did he come to be both fully man and fully God? You'll likely also remember that the solution and the answer of the question actually came down from Rome. The moral of the story for our purposes is this. The question of Christology actually gets settled in the West. But the question remains actually uh, pretty much unsettled in the East. 
And this distinction becomes important as it, it really lays the, fr- the framework for just even further divides between the church. In the West, the most important question actually comes forward, brought on by Augustine, in the nature of salvation. So they move beyond say, trying to figure out who Christ was, and they actually say, okay, so what did Christ do? This really frames our theological foundation of what we understand about today, what we call, and we're getting ready for it, it's a big word, soteriology. It's grounded in Augustine. Soteriology is another name for the doctrine of salvation. And what we hold true related to the nature of salvation is largely because of Augustine and primarily his application of the Bible to this question of how we are saved. However, the other side, uh, you may remember Pelagius. Eric talked about him last week. Pelagius was a precursor to the Arminian school of thought. He was a British monk born in AD 354, around the same time that Augustine was born. And they're really diametrically opposed. They have this really huge debate where Pelagius argues that when it comes to the nature of salvation, we're not born with a sinful nature. Pelagius uh, sets up this paradigm where sin is actually something we learn. Sin is thought of as a habit that we pick up as we walk through the world. Therefore, all we need for our salvation is the knowledge and law of God. We just need the rules because we can just learn to follow them. So again, on the other side... The flip of that coin is Augustine. Born in AD 354, Augustine recognizes that Pelagius is just, he's just wrong. He's flat out wrong. And he knows that because he looks to scripture. He, see, he sees parts of the Bible like Romans 3, where it says no one does good. Matthew 15, 19, where it said evil comes out of the heart. And John 8, 34, we are all slaves to sin. So Augustine, he just recognizes that just by our nature of humanity, we are sinful. This is not something that we can change. It's not a habit or uh, an addiction that we can break through, kind of pull up by our own bootstraps and pull ourselves out of it. It actually requires much, much more than law. It requires the sacrifice of Christ. So you'll ask yourself this morning, well, why, why is this debate important? Well, it's extremely important. If Pelagius is right, then Jesus' death on the cross is just all for naught. And because he, all he really needed to do was teach us the law and moral teachings. According to Pelagius, he didn't need to die in our place. And this is a really crucial and key distinction here. So while the West condemned Pelagianism, we see moving forward, unfortunately, that they actually kind of adopted it in practice. So what develops is known as this, uh, this concept of semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagian soteriology is not saying that we're born good and we learn to sin, Rather, what it's saying is that we as human beings take the first step towards God. It holds true that we take that step, and then God responds with grace. You can see there's an important distinction there as well. The grace of God is thereby merited by what we do, and by our ability to take that step towards God, by desiring God. Augustine would still say, nope, you missed the mark, you're still flat out wrong. He rightly believed that we actually can't take the step at all. After all, we are dead in our sins. God, in his grace, has to rise us from the dead and call us to himself. So if you want to frame this in a bit of a theological category, Augustine is arguing what for, for what we call monergism. And semi-Pelagianism argues for synergism. Think of synergy like working together. Man and God working together for the process of salvation. Augustine says that's horse feathers. He says 
it, he believes in monergism. Uh, it's, it's one direction, only by the grace of God, as he calls us to himself. So it's a question of human agency. And Augustine believed we're really the passive agents in the process. So according to monergism, again, we are totally passive, and God is totally active, in self, both in salvation and in redemptive history. I hope that distinction makes, makes some sense for you all this morning. So thankfully, rightfully, even semi-Pelagianism is condemned as heretical at the Synod of Orange in A.D. 529. But again, unfortunately, that doesn't really stop it. It kind of continues as practice, and we see it play out in some of the, uh, the steps that the early church takes. However, you can juxtapose that to the East, where they're, they're just outright Pelagian. They're not fighting against it at all. So in both the East and the West, you see at the least semi-Pelagianism, even though one is trying to route it at times, and the other, it just isn't. Next slide, please. So we're going to talk a little bit about political divisions in the early 5th and 6th centuries. Um, or, I'm sorry, 4th and 5th centuries. And context is really crucial. It's key when we're looking at this time period. It's good to understand kind of what's happening in the world, specifically as we look at the political divisions arising in the church. Barbarian invasions of the 4th and 5th centuries really reshaped and dismantled the Roman Empire in their place. And barbarian kingdoms then kind of took root, specifically in the West. The Huns to the north start moving south, and what happens is they push these barbarian tribes into what we know today as Western Europe. So they're all filtering down, and the Roman Empire actually, to a certain extent, gives them opportunity to move in. Within this group, you can think of groups such as the Ostrogoths, the Visigoths, the Anglo-Saxons, etc. And actually, in AD 410, Rome is sacked by Alaric the Visigoth. And this was functionally really the beginning of the end of the, of the formalized, structured Roman Empire as we know it, particularly in the West. Eventually, the Hun threat somewhat disappears, and these tribes are left kind of to their own devices to figure out how to uh, coexist and occupy this Western part of Europe. If you will, there's no longer any sort of centralized power in the West that Rome had, had taken that place, but now we get this decentralized power spread amongst a bunch of these small kingdoms. Meanwhile, in the East, uh, the emperor kind of stays in power. It remains the uh, united political system of Rome underneath him. It's just it shrinks to a much smaller size. The point here that you should take away is that a major political divide geographically is happening in this part of the world, and we see further development and split between the East and between the West. Again, the West is decentralized, as you can see over in that side of Europe, and the East is centralized. The Roman Empire is still strong in the East, but it's particularly weak in the West. So now we're going to take a quick jump about 100 years into the 6th century, and we're going to talk a little bit about the East and the West, continuing this theme of the split here. And a really uh, fun way to think about this period in time is, is kind of putting it on the shoulders of two individual people, kind of signifying the East and the West. So in the East, you have an individual named uh, Justinian the Great, and in the West, you have Pope Gregory the Great. And if you look at the handout, you'll notice Justinian the Great embodied the philosophy of ces- and, and I'll get this right, Caesaropapism, and Gregory the Great embodied the idea of a papal monarchy. And we'll explain what those kind of mean. Next slide, please. Let's start in the East with Justinian the Great. It's, he's uh, in the 6th century, and he was uh, emperor 
uh, mostly from the late 5th century into the early 6th century. He resides in Constantinople and starts a period of political restoration. Again, I mentioned he argues for Caesaropapism, whereby he says that he legitimately has concentrated authority over both the state and the church. He says that this mandate uh, comes from history and it was handed down from Constantine. So what he does is he brings the emperor in to enforce the state's authority over the church. Justinian argues that Caesaropapism rules over everything. The pope is ruled by Caesar, and uh, which was the old title for the empires. So at this point in time, uh, we're actually referring to them as the Byzantine Empire. You can kind of use those a bit inter- interchangeably in this period of time. Um, but the idea and the grandeur of Rome was still very much internalized by the Byzantine state. To that end, Justinian felt a really uh, heavy pressure to kind of uh, restore to the Byzantine Empire the grandeur and uh, widespread of that the Roman Empire uh, enjoyed. So he wages this enormous campaign to try and reconquer those lost lands. He pushes into the west, successfully taking back areas of North Africa as well as southern Spain and Italy. He reclaims a lot of that former glory of Rome, but shortly after his death in AD 565, he gains most, his gains mostly vanish, and the empire shrinks back to the east. It's really just a momentary blip on the like historical radar, but Justinian also pushes cultural restoration during this time period, which becomes pretty crucial for the infrastructure of the early church. He rebuilds roads and cities and walls and dams. He builds an, he builds an enormous church known as the Hagia Sophia, so the point is that in the East, there's still that centralization and direction of kind of that, the state uh, directing the growth of the church. There's an order in place, and they have a, and it's, it's a good thing because at that point in time, there's really a developing threat, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as we, as we continue. But Islam is beginning to develop down in what is now uh, Saudi Arabia around the early 7th century. So it's good to know what the East is going to face in the future, and again, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Islam in the in that movement in just a little bit. Next slide, please. So the West, uh, what about the West? Well, it's exactly the opposite. We talked a little bit earlier. In the West, the guy who's in charge actually isn't the emperor because Rome has lost and, and the Byzantine Empire has lost a lot of that centralized control. What we actually have is a, the, the only stabilizing figure in that part of the world is uh, the pope or the bishop in Rome as we would know uh, know him. And that's why we speak about uh, Pope Gregory and papal monarchy. Now, it's basically the pope who rules over what will become Western Europe as we know it. And what things look like in the Western Empire, again, as I mentioned, is divided into these smaller kingdoms. The Ostrogoths in Italy, the Visigoths in Spain, the Angles and Saxons in the British Isles, and the Franks in Gaul, or what we know as France today. It's the development here of what we know as Western Europe, and it sounds familiar to us. Uh, so... These tribes, operating their own kind of independent kingdoms, were creating a ton of disorder. So there was a power vacuum that sort of developed in the general region. And they needed someone who was stable and a a kind of a stabilizing figure in the political scene to stabilize the way that they interacted with each other. And they actually looked to the church. So they looked to the church to provide uh, mechanisms to distribute food, to provide protection and medical care, to draw up treaties. Really, the church was the answer. So people in search of that authority, they looked to the Bishop of Rome, and the Bishop of Rome, or the Pope as we know it now, gathered a ton of power during this time period. So the embodiment of this papal monarchy in the West uh, is Pope Gregory the Great, 
who actually John Calvin would go, go on to write and call the last good pope. So why would he say this? Well, Gregory did subscribe to the idea of special authority placed in the seat of the pope. However, Pope Gregory really wasn't abusive of it at all. Gregory was heavily missions-minded for the church, and he actually wrote uh, in his pastoral rule that the sight of blonde-haired slaves from Ingrid, England, paraded into the Roman uh, forum, actually moved him to think that there were people outside of Rome who desperately needed the gospel. So secondly, uh, Pope Gregory, he didn't display a lot of the pomp and ceremony that popes of, that we know of today would go on to display. So he came from a, a, a truly monastic background, and we're going to talk about the monastic movement in a little bit. He aspired to live just very simply. He actually mourned the loss of prayer time that being the pope caused for him. And uh, he was concerned really specifically about pastoral ministry. Uh, he wrote, How often do men who have no knowledge whatever of spiritual precepts fearlessly profess themselves physicians of the heart? So he really cared about who was actually in positions of authority within the church. And we'll see later, Pope Gregory is concerned with making the idea of God's grace very visible to the common man, and at this time, very biblically illiterate people. Next slide. Okay. We'll talk about the rising threat of Islam, as I mentioned. Justinian died in AD 565. Five years later, Muhammad is born. When he's about 40 years old, Mohammed, as a merchant, retreats to a cave to meditate. And while he meditates, he claims to receive a new revelation from God, which he then writes down in a book we know as the Quran. He gathers a band of followers around him in Mecca. At this time in Arabia, it's very polytheistic. Everybody uh, has, has multiple gods that they pray to. The political structure is disunified and tribal. And the authorities get together in Mecca, and they're just not on board with this monotheism that Muhammad is arguing for. They persecute him, and they run him out of town. So he travels to Medina and gathers a whole lot of followers there. And he actually returns to Mecca in AD 630 with with an army, a huge army, and he conquers the city. So from there, you can see this map depicting here. From there, it's game on. uh, and, And the Islamic faith spreads, covering most of the Arab world as we know it today. So within 10 years, he and his followers have taken Syria, they've taken Palestine, and large parts of Persia. In 100 years, they've conquered Egypt, the rest of North Africa, southern France, and parts of Spain. And at this point in time, they're laying siege to Constantinople, which is the capital of what we knew as the Roman Empire at the time. This is all within 100 years, a very, very short period of time. So in the 6th century, things in the east were looking good. Civilization and order... Everything was a bit more stable. However, the rising threat of Islam soon posed a significant threat to destabilize the authority there and will eventually conquer the majority of the Roman Empire within an additional 100 years. All right, so we're leaving the 6th century behind. We're going to take a quick 200-year jump into the 9th century. What's going on? I'm sorry, the 300-year jump. I told you my math was bad. Uh, the Eastern Church, as I mentioned, is shrinking, right? The Muslim invasions at this point, you know, they, they've uh, pushed through most of the territory. Uh, and the Eastern Empire is losing lots of power, influence, and land to these Muslim invasions. At the same time, the East is still, you know, they're really starting to engage um, meaningfully in sending missionaries into the Slavic lands. So we can see this on the next slide. <clears throat> so what's going on in the West? As the East is decentralizing and sending missionaries north to the Slavic lands, uh, 
it's, very, it's changing dramatically as they lose power. The West actually uh, starts finally consolidating. I mentioned earlier that it was fairly decentralized, multiple kings, small kingdoms. Now they're slowly consolidating <clears throat> as different kings and tribal leaders saw alliances and begin to work together. Ultimately, over time, the king of the Franks becomes a major figure for what we know to become Western Europe. He and the Pope are kind of working together, not one over the other, but in tandem, uh, to protect one another, to reinforce one another's authority. They've got this kind of give and take, where when when each needs one, they call on the other and they support each other. So, at one point in time, the Pope runs into some problems in Rome, and he, he has these nobles who are basically looking just to beat the tar out of him. So he seeks refuge with Charles I. So then, in return, Charles comes with the Pope to Rome, and he attends Mass, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, Leo III crowns him, boom, Emperor of Rome. He's just hanging out, and then, boom, there's a crown on his head, and he's basically the emperor of a huge swath of land. And this emperor, Charlemagne the Great, is the beginning of Europe as we know it. So let's, uh, let's, re- let's recenter ourselves here. We moved through several hundred years. Let's kind of get back to where we were. So let's talk about political division. We have the church and the state butting heads. The pope plays a card on the king and suddenly says, hey, guess what? I've got the authority to actually make you the emperor. So the pope is trying to get authority back from the church, from the state, and they're going back and forth. But the moral of the story is there's finally a centralization of power in the West that's been lacking for several hundred years. Let's talk about papal division, right? So we, we've got this... this uh, uh, bishop of, of Rome, and we've got all of these bishops scattered throughout the east, places like Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople. And no one bishop over here really has more power than the other bishop. They kind of form a bit of a council. In the west, it's the sole authority of the pope, uh, and he claims so because he holds a seat that was once Peter's. So there's one bishop in the west, and all these bishops in the east, and they're fighting it out. And in the ninth century, the Eastern Church actually sends missionaries into the Slavic areas, and the Western Church gets angry and says, whoa, 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 that's our turf. What are you doing? We're going to see how that kind of sparks some uh, chain, chain of events in a second. Again, let's talk about that soteriological division. There's issues of great theological division between the East and West. The big picture is that in the West, they're still focused on Augustine and kind of a modifying Augustine's soteriology, where they're saying, we condemn semi-Pelagianism, but we actually practice it. In the East, they're actually, they're not even, they're still stuck on the idea of Christology and the body of Christ and who he was. So the nature of salvation is understood as moving from a state of sin to grace in the West, but they don't have that same understanding in the East. Uh, There's a point of conversion in the West where they say, you move from being condemned in sin to a state of grace, and you lead then a life of repentance. In the East, though, they don't have that, that point in time. You kind of work through the process over time where your your humanity blends with divinity. They don't see it as a transition. It's something you work through throughout your life. Lastly, we've got this authoritative division. As we mentioned, the theology in the West is propositional. They're very convicted in it with their beliefs. They say these things are true and these things are false. But in the East, the theology is really grounded in liturgy. It's about mystery and paradox. And when we think of the Eastern religions, including Eastern Orthodoxy, they're kind of mystical right? So in the East, they're saying, look, you can't even really talk about God because we don't have the words to describe or express who God is. And they aren't, certainly aren't propositional in their statements. They're not really convicted in, in anything. They're still struggling and grappling to figure out the truth. 
So in the West, Scripture is authority. It's all about creeds and texts, and they look to that as authority. But in the East, it's the liturgy, tradition, and practice, uh, the paradox and mysticalism. So the point is this, and I know we keep beating it over the head. We've gone in total, the churches have gone in totally different directions, uh, both politically, culturally, ecclesiologically, theologically. So what is it then that causes the break? You know, like what's the final straw that breaks the camel's back? And how do we end up with the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church? Next slide, please. Enter the Philoquay. <laughs> there were a lot of controversies over the century that added pressure such as arguments over the date of Easter I talked about in my week two session, uh, disagreements on the Christology, as we talked about this morning, unhappiness with papal claims, but the greatest persistent force that, that finally drove the wedge that split the two churches apart was the Philoque. The word is Latin, and it means and the sun. So how does this one little word divide all of Christianity at this point in time? So if we think back to the Council of Nicaea, the point of the question that they dealt with was the interaction among the persons of the Trinity, right? So what does it look like for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to interact? Arius argued that Jesus was created and that there was a time when the Son was not. The Nicene Creed was formulated just as, frankly, a way to recognize that Arius was just flat-out wrong, that Jesus is eternal, immutable, one with the Father. The Trinity is one substance, one God, but three persons. In the West... To solidify this, they actually add a phrase to the Nicene Creed. And you can observe at the end of the creed on your handout, uh, and I'll read it. The Lord and life giver who proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's the Philoque. The question is whether the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Son in addition to the Father. In the West, Augustine had recognized that the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. So in that sense, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. In Scripture, we can observe this. In John 15, 26, God says that he will send the Holy Spirit who will proceed from the Son. The West progressively and disparately adds this phrase to the different creeds to clarify how the Trinity functions. And this was the spark that split the churches. The East gets really, really upset. They say, whoa, 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 hold up. There you guys in the West go again. You think you've got one pope. You can do whatever you want. You can up and change the creed on us. Uh, they, they claim they had all these bishops over here who had a better understanding, and they say, you can't change the creeds. And the West replies, well, this is true and accurate, and they point to Scripture. They say it needs to be in there. And they really go at it, back and forth, back and forth. And ultimately, in A.D. 1054, the Patriarch of Constantinople in the East declares the Bishop of Rome a heretic, outright excommunicates the Pope. He essentially... Uh, so, so this division continues, and that's not the end of it. <laughs> Actually, the straw that finally breaks the camel's back is a letter sent from the Patriarch of Constantinople to all the Western bishops, criticizing them over the use of unleavened bread in communion. In response, tensions build, and Pope Leo IX, the Bishop of Rome at the time, he then excommunicates every single head bishop in the East. So what you have is... Uh, just these churches excommunicating their leaders. One excommunicating the other, excommunicating the other, and so on. And uh, there it's where it stands today. So the churches would say about the other that that church is heretical and we can't be in communion with them. So ladies and gentlemen, that's how you end up today with the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. So how do we see the movements in the church affect what's going on with Christianity and the surrounding world? Obviously, we talked a lot about what's going on inside the church. Now we're kind of going to zoom out a little bit and just see how the church is interacting with the rest of the world. 
we're going to observe two in particular. The first is monasticism, and the second is visible grace. Next slide. So monasticism started in Egypt around the early 300s. Many people fled into the wilderness after reading Athanasius' biography of St. Anthony, who was a rich young man who sold everything he had to become a monk. So lots of monks fled to Egypt and Palestine on an ascetic quest for holiness. In time, it developed into a really extreme example of ascetic lifestyle, including self-depriving behavior such as Simeon the Stylite, who actually lived for 40 years on top of a platform 50 feet high up in the air. The monastic movement in the West really picked up steam during the uh, 6th century. The goal was to pursue this kind of really pure spiritual life, to purify oneself and remove them from the contamination of the world around them, where they could focus on self-denial and uh, concentrating on a true pursuit of God. There's no private ownership within that monastic movement, but there is a rigorous life of prayer, often seven times a day, even waking up in the middle of the night to pray. They would engage in fervent Bible study, and they would remain celibate as a further um, evidence of the denial of worldly pleasures. They focused purely on the pursuit of God. So here you can see the influence of Pelagianism into the actual practice of church leaders at the time. Why does it pick up steam? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, there's no external persecution of the Christian church anymore. So Christianity, being the kind of endorsed religion in Rome, with no external threat, this is a way for Christians to kind of persecute themselves, to pursue a life of self-denial instead of living uh, in a left in life of external persecution. So there's popularity that comes from that. Christians can thereby test their devotion to Christ since no one else externally is doing it to them. Secondly, there was the popular teaching at the time to subdue the body in order to purify the soul. You deny the material world in order to purify what is within. And thirdly, Consider what the world looked like at the time. You have barbarian tribes. You've got disorder and chaos. It's really a far cry from a perfect world. So it really wasn't a bad time for these Christians to uh, lead them to think, like, I'll just pull away to some quiet buildings in the hills and and pray to God uh, and kind of hide my head. So as we're considering this monastic lifestyle, you might be wondering, like, so what were the pros and what were the cons? And there were a few, and I'll, I'll talk about four pros. It certainly enabled a life with a focus on Christ and this attempt to rebut temptation. The move away from the temptation of the world to focus on the Lord is a positive thing to an extent. Really, a huge pro of this period of time was evangelism. If you look at this period in time, you've got lots of monks who are going out among the barbarian tribes to share the gospel. Patrick goes to Ireland. You probably would recognize St. Patrick of St. Patrick's Day uh, as a perfect example. There's even an evangelistic drive as these monks are moving out into the tribes throughout Western Europe to engage in just life. So these monasteries, uh, as another upside, they preserve huge amounts of Orthodox theology for us. So in a time where uh, most of the population were illiterate and there was a ton of destruction, what you have is these monks coming together and copying down scripture and other ancient texts for us, and thereby provided a warehouse library of uh, church history uh, for us, which is amazing. Lastly, they provide a ton of community service, as I mentioned. They teach children, they build homes, they provide medical care, they grow food. Um, So you can see some of the upsides of the monastic life for the the young church. There's cons, however. Let's talk a little bit about those. You can imagine how this would drive you into a works-based view of salvation. 
After all, you're working so hard to merit God's grace within the monastic life that you see yourself as cooperating with God in order to save yourself. It's right for us as, and then additionally, you have to ask yourself, is it right for us as Christians to totally withdraw from the world and, and turn our backs on it? And the answer is absolutely no, it isn't. When we look at scripture, we can see that God calls us to be salt and light in the world and to steward our creation and to love our neighbors and, and primarily spread, you know, and principally share the gospel across the world. This uh, was really hindered by the monastic movement. And the last con I'm going to talk about is it was fertile ground for corruption. So there's a lot of power being concentrated in these monasteries. Obviously, I mentioned they're growing food. They're growing, uh, they're providing medical care. They're also uh, becoming a market of sorts, which they control land. And with this sacrament of penance, uh, the sacrament of penance develops, which we're going to talk about a little bit more when we talk about visible grace. But this is a penance, the concept of penance is where the congregation will give to the church uh, lands and goods as a means of being penitential for their sins. So it creates these fertile grounds for corruption as these monasteries amass uh, huge amounts of wealth. Uh, visible grace is often one of the ways that the church interacted with the world at this period in time. I mentioned earlier Pope Gregory the Great. Uh, he had that idea of visible grace. Think again about the shape of society in this period in time. It's total disorder. You have people farming the dirt. Uh, they aren't reading or writing. They're not literate. They're not going to school. They're certainly not studying the scriptures for themselves. So the church, under Pope Gregory, developed a plan for how they were going to bring Christianity to the people. Gregory makes extensive tours around Europe so that people can actually see the pope with hopes that it produces a connection to the church. And other churchmen sought to provide ways for people to see grace working itself out in their lives. We thus see the development of a number of Roman Catholic sacraments and practices, including uh, transubstantiation. This is where Catholics believe that the bread and wine are actually the body of Christ, and that <clears throat> you are literally consuming Christ when you take the Lord's Supper. It's a visible manifestation of God's grace being imparted into your life. And we end up, additionally, with this cult of saints, as the church promotes leaders to really high esteemed positions. Uh, we also get the veneration of Mary as well. So Jesus, he seems pretty remote. He's about, you know, he's a guy in a book that you can't read. Uh, but the saints, they're much closer. They're people that, you know, your family may have knew or they lived in your community where you live. So they're much closer. These were people that were walking the earth. They're now with Jesus. So the common people think, well, I can pray with them and they can work on my behalf with Jesus. And maybe Mary can do the same. You know, she's his mother. So you see how this... Uh, this visible grace kind of leads to a road of some incomplete uh, thoughts about how we can interact with God. People were also worshiping pagan gods, and the church kind of, as an answer to that, says, whoa, 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 so instead of worshiping that pagan god, why don't you try directing your worship towards this saint or maybe this relic? And then lastly is the, this idea of penance. How are we going to make grace visible? The church said, well, you can participate in your salvation by practicing uh, confession or by telling the bishop or the local cleric about your sins. And the bishop or cleric can impart forgiveness to you on behalf of God. Again, they feel like they're participating. They're able to see it and interact with it. Through all this, uh, you actually start to see the seeds of the Protestant Reformation starting to take root. If you look at Martin Luther, what was he frustrated by? 
He was seeing, seeking to be a perfect penitent to, to this God who condemns sin, and he's praying all the time, and he's going through all these acts, and he's doing all these things to get God's grace, but it just doesn't seem to be working. He's upset at the church for selling indulgences, whereby giving all the money to the church kind of stores up some sort of merit. And all of this is developing in the early church, even back into the ninth, you know, the early ninth century here. But thankfully, it's leading us to the right return, to the fact that salvation is by grace alone and not by participating in these sacraments. So in conclusion, the church, uh, especially in the East, took some bad turns during this time. In the West, political chaos produced a role for the church that went far beyond being God's appointed role for making disciples. In both cases, we see a departure from what God's word calls the church to be. This erroneous trajectory, as we'll see in the next week, will continue throughout the high Middle Ages. And I'm excited to take a look there. So that's what I have for you for curriculum this morning. I'd love to entertain any questions you might have. I have one. Go ahead. Yeah. Like to like tier two, and then finally to like tier one issues where we're like, yeah, we don't really consider you to be a believer either at this point. Yeah, I would say that these divi- I mean, well, I wouldn't know exactly, you know, how they categorized which issues became the most predominant. What you can clearly see through the progression of time is that it just each one is just like another weight on the relationship between the East and the West Church, and as things progress and more weights are added they'll use something frivolous like the date of Easter or, you know, what the bread for communion should be as just a really, you know, they'll just cherry pick one issue and bring it up as you see the bishops in the East talking to the West saying, you know, you guys are using leavened bread. That's a no-go. You're out of the church. Uh, I don't think that in and of itself was the issue. I think it was this compounding, you know, theological, political, um, ecclesiological divide between the two churches. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question directly, but it, it seems to me that there was no, there may have been some categorization, but it was really the total totality of circumstances that led to the final, uh, what they call schism. So the Eastern Church is called the Eastern, it turned into the Eastern Orthodox. What was the Western Church called now? Roman Catholic Church. Uh, well, we're way before the, the Reformation at this point, so really we have, um, really it's, you know, the, the, the first distinctions we see within the churches kind of arise at this point. So you get the East and West schism, and that's really the first time we see two types of Christian churches, if that makes sense. I think, I don't think they would call themselves Catholic at that point. Uh, I think we, we'll see a little bit later on where that term becomes a bit more prevalent, um, yeah, I think that they're still forming their identities as the Eastern Church and the Western Church. At this point, there's, you know, we're coming from the councils of Nicaea where there's still quite a bit of unification, but by 1054, we get a final split, and then we're going to start to see identities of these churches further develop. But they both would have, like, popes and bishops and stuff like that. So the Western Church had, quote-unquote, the pope. It was the bishop of the Roman Church, right? And he, he, he claimed the title of pope as it was the chair of Peter, uh, the Eastern churches have many bishops, Antioch, Jerusalem, Constantinople. Um, so they don't argue supremacy of one leader over the other, whereas the Western church argues, no, we have, a, we have supremacy. It's in the, the bishop of Rome that is the leader, the leader of the church. So that was one of probably the issues that 
Oh, huge. Yeah. From what I from what I understand, yes, yeah. They certainly don't have a you know. I wouldn't say any of the Orthodox Christian religions have a pope. They wouldn't recognize the pope as a as a position within within that church. That was much more of the Western philosophy of the church, which then later developed into Catholicism. Interesting for me too. I didn't. I didn't learn about that Philoque concept until preparing for this. Matt, what's going on with Islam? Like you said, you said it. He was starting around seven hundred. You said or six something. So, but then he jumped to like you know three hundred years. Like what was going on? And when like when did the Crusades start happening? Yeah. So in that time period, um, through the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth centuries, you're seeing a ton of conquering by the Muslim. Faith, so they're 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 actually on the move, conquering lots of areas that, uh, particularly even in the West, uh, North Africa, southern Spain. So so they're just they're on they're mobilizing, they're on the move and spreading. So you see a ton of uh, ton of growth with, of that religion. We're going to talk about the Crusades and the interaction with the uh, you know the the Islamic faith uh, next week. Uh, so Eric has the pleasure of discussing a lot of a lot of that. Are they spreading their message by force? Or are they getting natural converts? Yeah, so... I mean, I don't want to say... Yeah, uh, yes, no. I think, I think it's likely you're going to see both. I mean, we certainly see mobilization of an army. Uh, you see this, you know, it literally took an army of believers to, to go into Medina and Mecca and conquer those parts of the Arabian Peninsula. So you, I, I know for, for a fact you've got by force. I, I haven't studied or looked at the question of did they do any sort of, uh, you know, Passive evangelism of, of the uh, Islamic faith. Uh, I don't see any evidence that it didn't happen, but certainly I can tell you uh, they definitely did it by force, for sure. Any other questions? Well, great. RGT, uh, thank you so much for your time. Let me just close this out in a quick, quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your history. We thank you that you are on the move, that your church is growing, and that uh, you work through the church. Father, bless this church this morning. Uh, bless BJ as he comes up to preach. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you most for the work uh, for our salvation done on the cross by your son, Jesus Christ. In his holy and precious name we pray. Amen.